What's up, everyone? Welcome back to another episode of Meet the Creatives. I've got a great episode in store for you today uh, and a whole bunch of fun stuff coming down the line. And this is all made possible by my good friends at KEH Camera, the world's largest buyer and seller of used camera equipment. You know, I just love their mission to make photography more accessible to everyone by selling certified, fully warranted used camera gear. Their collection of gear is insane, ranging from vintage film equipment to some of the latest DSLRs in the market. Uh, they got it all, and it's all up to 40% off of retail value. So it's really easy to find the camera that fits your needs with KEH Camera. I recently had the opportunity to upgrade my own gear, and they made it so easy. Uh, I talked to a gear expert and who's also a photographer, which is amazing. Like, How often do you get to talk to somebody who also is a photographer online? And I uh, was able to pick out the perfect gear, and they work with me. Um, to kind of understand what my needs were, what I was trying to do. You know, I talked about the podcast, you know, potentially starting a YouTube channel, headshots, all this different stuff. And they were able to work with me to put together a kit that perfectly met my needs. And uh, over the last couple of months, I've been using it with my personal freelance clients, um, with my friends and family. And it has been so exciting to dive back into photography. And, you know, with this new gear from KEH, I really feel, feel like there are no limits as to what I could do. So, you know, I'll be documenting that in the coming months. Be sure to check them out at KEH.com and use my code ROBJ11 to save 5% off your first purchase. Once again, that's ROBJ11 at KEH.com and you'll save 5% off your first purchase. And without further ado, here's the show. Don't worry, my first guest, I know him very well. A nice big round of applause for Brian Evans. I love Brian. Brian has been a close friend and mentor to me over the years. I am a photographer now, and I remember when I first started out on this journey that uh, Brian was very patient and kind and introduced me to some new friends and has always been there for me. So uh, thank you for being here. Pleasure to be here with you all. All right, so, uh, so let's get into it. I know that we've kind of talked on some long car rides going up to Port Jervis and stuff like that and uh, gotten to know each other over the years, but when was the first time you picked up a camera and uh, what was that experience like? Did you always know you wanted to be a photographer? Give me like the rundown. How did this all happen? Well, I guess I can blame my grandmother. Uh, she, on my sixth birthday, had gotten me a Kodak Instamatic camera. You guys probably won't remember those. They'll be in antique shops with the cube flash on top and everything. And uh, ever since that day, I've been looking at life through a viewfinder. But um, my father, sitting over there, uh, years later, he, uh, yeah, he, he had 35 millimeter film cameras. Remember those? I don't know if you remember those. But uh, he had film cameras, and that, that got me interested even more. Uh, in high school, uh, I shot for the yearbook committee. And as a freshman in high school, I'm looking at the yearbook and I think, that, that, that's like the greatest thing to do. Why not? You know, I was sort of a nerd. I'm still a nerd, but I was sort of a nerd in the beginning of the high school. And in my junior year, I became a photographer on the high school yearbook committee. Everybody wanted to be my friend. Take my picture. Take my picture. I want to be in the yearbook. So, Pre-Instagram. Yeah, yeah that, was, that was it. That was your Instagram in, in the yearbook. And uh, yeah, some of the people did get in there. Some of the people didn't, of course. And some of my pictures were great, some of them weren't. I used to work in the dark room in the high school and all that. And I did continue to do that through college. And then um, I put the camera down for a little while. And then in the 80s, uh, I picked up medium format film. You know, big expensive cameras, but they take beautiful images, uh, which they're worth 50 bucks today. But back in the day, they were probably thousands of dollars at that point. So um, I'm going, you know, there's a way to make money here. So I did my first wedding, and I let the people do it for cost. So whatever my costs were, that's what I did. And, uh, and I moved along from there and studied what other people did, and I did my, put my own little spin on it, on how I saw it, again, looking through life through the viewfinder. As we went along, I had dealings with labs, and I didn't really have some, I had some good labs, but I, they ruined a roll of film on me, and it kind of turned me off photography for a little while so I switched over to video and video was kind of big in the in the 80s and everything like that so I, I shot a lot of parties on video cameras that I had and uh, what I did was I'm working with all these photographers and I'm going, oh look what he did 
oh, I see what he's doing. Like oh, look what I, oh, that's nice. But they weren't teaching me like I taught you. <laughs> but uh, nonetheless, they were uh, doing their thing, and I'm taking a little bit, and I got my bag of tricks, and I'm putting it back in. And then in 2000, when digital photography became a thing again, uh, well, well, it's still a new thing, actually, uh, I started picking that up, and a friend of mine, we said, what camera to get? Do we want to go Canon? Do we want to go Nikon? Sorry, Canon people, but... We went, okay. we went Nikon. There's not, nothing wrong with Canon. Right. Nothing wrong with Canon. But uh, I'm a Nikon shooter. And uh, since then, I've been, I've been perfecting that and watching, again, other photographers. I have other friends of mine that are in the business, and I watch what they do. I see how they do things. Uh, there's a, and here we go. I'm going to plug a good friend of mine, Dino Petroselli. Cool. Plug, plug away. Yeah, day yeah. Day. Dino Petroselli. Um, he has a studio in Albany, and he's got a beautiful studio. He does cars, he does motorcycles. He's on, on magazine covers. Uh, and if you go in his studio, his walls are filled with magazine covers for motorcycles and things. But his best specialty is weddings. And you know, you, you might walk into a photographer like that and say, "Oh, he shoots motorcycles," but I I got a wedding. But you have to look at his wedding things. It's not just that. We're not pigeonholed into just shooting weddings because if you shoot all these other things, it allows you to get more creative in your mind and shoot differently maybe when you're doing a wedding or what have you. So um, I try to emulate him. Uh, that picture that's on the display right now, uh, I built this softbox. He has a, a probably a 15 by 30 softbox in the ceiling. And I, in my garage, I made a studio and I built, a, on a smaller scale, a four by eight softbox, which we shot that with over there. Right. And it's just, uh, you need the softbox for motorcycles, you need the softbox for, uh, for cars above. And you need the white floor to reflect the light back up. And you do that because why? If I'm shooting here, you're gonna see my flash in the, in the chrome of the car, in the paint of the car, and right. things like that. You would have seen it in the guitar in that particular picture. Now, now this one I did shoot direct on with flash. That's, uh, uh, that's my thing too. I also shoot motorcycles and auto events, moto events if you will. And uh, for uh, I'd say about 15 years I've been going to Americade in Lake George and shooting a lot of motorcycles there. And uh, I also do, when I can do it because it's in the busy part of my season, uh, I do the Adirondack Nationals up there which is hot rods and all sorts of custom cars and everything like that. And it's not that I make money on that. It's that that's what I kind of enjoy to do that part of photography in there. Can you talk about the role of um, you know of, of empathy in, in in your work? You know, I think one of the things you do really great, and it probably comes across immediately to you guys, is that you are very much so a people person. Yes, yeah. And yeah, you love human interactions, genuine moments. Do you have anything you could share on kind of the not so much the technical, but the emotional aspect of? Photography, and then how do you kind of frame that through the lens, as you so eloquently said? Well, it's again, it's all about the vision that you have in your mind. Um, I, I guess I got my my framing visions from uh, Life magazine or any magazine. You, I, I like to crop in the camera. Some studios don't like that, but I like to crop in the camera, uh, and I've done that all over the years. Uh, I love to shoot vertical. People are vertical things, and I love to shoot vertical. And uh, maybe you have to do something maybe to get the people to react a little bit. Uh, you coach people. You're, yes. you're not somebody who's, you're not very quiet per se. Uh, no, you have, to, you have to interact with the people, crack a joke. You know, I got, my, I got my standard jokes. My wife who assists me sometimes, uh, she hears my regular running jokes, you know. She rolls uh, Yeah, yeah, because she <laughs> hears it all the time, you know. It's, uh, it's just one of those things to lighten the people up and, uh, and I use it all the time. But uh, here you go, table shot. Okay, you get people to stand and sit for a table shot. Yeah, give me some tips. Uh, all, right. all right, so table shot, everyone's sitting there. Okay, and then I take like three pictures and I go, I look at them. That was our serious shots. Okay, now everybody get together. Lean in, lean in like you like each other. And they put their arms around each other. They're leaning their faces into the center. They're all smiling. They're all looking at the camera now. They're not like, you know, you get the one ant on her phone or she's looking over there. She's not paying attention that gets them to look at you. So this way you're interacting with the people, you're getting them to really pay attention to what you're doing. And nine times out of 10, that's the picture they'll choose. Right, you know, the, the, the funny one. The, the serious ones, I mean, some of them are still smiling, but not like they are there. And I even did that yesterday. 
uh, here you go, you got a slate of candidates. I put them together as a group and I stood them up like that and I said, okay, now let's get together. Which one did they like? The get together one. Right. Oh, let's do that again. Oh, we like that. Let's do that again. Because I'm showing them as I'm going along, you know. Right. And uh, you have to get the people to react to your camera. And there's little tricks. You use your personality. You, you know, come up with a joke or, or just lightheartedness, you know. Right. And people are going, like, oh, wow, you're so happy. You're so good. I said, if I make you cry, and I've known photographers that have made brides cry. I've seen it. Okay, and, and wonderful photographers, excellent photographers, but not necessarily the people person. So you have to be able to become that, that people person to get, get them to react to you. And of course, there's always room for just straight up candid, journalistic candid. So there's always room for that, and that's where I get that long lens I told you to get. You know, I, I use I it. I racked up some serious credit card debt just from listening to this guy, but not. <laughs> yeah, I, I do that. There was another fellow. Uh, um, I couldn't afford it at all, but I wanted to be like Brian. I had to be like Brian. You know, so yeah. it, it's the way it is. My, my friend, I get another friend, uh, and, and this is what I do with everybody. I take them under my wing for a little while because they're only there for a little while. Because eventually they get on and they go do things on their own. And I can't, I can't get them to help me out anymore because, oh, I'm booked, man. I'm sorry. Oh, I'm booked. I'm sorry. So that's why I have a lot of my guys under my wing that I can choose from as I go along if I need the help. Um, you know, so it's sharing the love, the passion of photography. It's a passion. It's not, it's not a job. Like some people take it as a job. For me, it's, it's a passion. It's, you know, so keep your passion going. Keep experimenting. Keep trying something different. You know, because then you're going to find that that's something different. That's your wow factor. Ladies and gentlemen, give a nice big round of applause for Brian Evans and Brian's dad back there. Woo! And your father's name is? Sam. Sam. Sam, thank you for coming. I really appreciate it. 90 what? He's 93 years old. You look, you're looking damn good, Sam. You look good. All right, brother. Come on up, Kelly. Yeah. Big round of applause for Kelly. Come on. We got a crowd now. I'm excited. One more big round of applause for Kelly. Come on, people. Woo! Live it up. Kelly's Instagram account is awesome. I got a little bit nervous getting ready for today's podcast. I thought I was going to be like this social media guru guy who had his act together. Apparently not. Kelly, even cooler. So thank you so much for being here. You're welcome. I could read off your bio, and there's a, there's a lot there. But sometimes I like to give my guests the opportunity to kind of introduce yourself, the thesis statement of you know who you are, what you're about, what you're doing. And now uh, we'll take it from there. I've always made art since I was little. It got lost in the process, loss of my sense of time. And um, in high school, I my art teacher would give me a late pass to the classes I didn't want to go to because he was so excited to have somebody enthused because art class was like, you know, a free for all for most people. And um, I went away to college and I started in art. And I had to take some art classes that were really intimidating and I just like dropped out because I was like that's who I was back then if yeah. it was scary or intimidating and um, outside of my comfort zone I wanted out immediately so um, fast forward <laughs> to uh, yeah like I don't know like five different careers later and I was a yoga teacher I owned a studio and um, I was suffering from like mental health issues. Um, and I was just breaking down every day. And it was so hard for me to like go and teach this like thoughtful, spiritual, um, encouraging class. Um, I would like drag it out of me, but then I would just go back home and, and you know, fall apart. So I went to see my teacher, and um, she's a counselor also. And we were talking and, you know, I was living and breathing yoga and anatomy and all this other stuff. And she said, girl, you need a hobby. She's like, go take a jewelry making class or something. And I was like, huh, you're right, right? And I was, so um, part of my mental health issues was eating disorders. And I was like climbing out of it slowly, but it was it was really difficult for me so I, I found a painting class an adult painting class and it was wonderful because she just let you kind of work on whatever and she'd give you a little guidance but it wasn't like you had to do 
the same thing as everybody else. And like, if everything has just gone by in such a flash since then, I have not stopped painting. Um, I stopped going into that class maybe six months in because I just didn't need it anymore. Um, and I found mixed media and I've been learning from um, my favorite artists and I just keep going with it. And uh, right now it's Alina Hennessy and she's my business mentor and my painting mentor. Um, so I, I, I haven't quite known where it was all going. I just knew I couldn't stop. And that's the first time in my life where I felt that, where I felt like I can't quit this. Like, I want to because it's hard, right? And it's hard to make a living and try to sell. And it's hard to um, put yourself out there. And there's a lot of vulnerability in doing your art as a career. Um, but I just can't stop. And then along the way, I've just been looking or asking for signs from the universe to keep going. And so, like when I want to give up, I sort of I get a bunch of sales, or an, um, or or something else happens. Like I just got a licensing deal with a company that is a hundred percent aligned with my messages. So like a lot of my work, most of my work has messages in it. Um, of encouragement and a lot of female empowerment stuff. And um, they are a company that their whole mission is to provide um, education for families, like in boys and girls in, on products, on notebooks and bags and all of that. And they scoured the internet for an artist, this, they've always done things in-house um, with graphic design. And um, they found me and they were like, you are the perfect match and we love your work. And so we're collaborating on a few projects and they have like 80 salespeople in the country and they sell worldwide. So that's where I'm at right now. Perfect. That was an awesome answer. I love that. And your work, by the way, as you can see here, Jenny, if you can just flip through a few of them, maybe, uh, is really incredible. I love this one. Could I? Do you have that? Is there? Or, or that was only just one of them? I actually, I have not listed that yet. So. Okay. I'll buy that off. Okay. Okay. Cool. <laughs> but I know that you use, you know, talk about getting your message out there. Your social media presence is like on point. So. Um, how did you get it out there? What was it like the first time you posted something? Did you immediately get feedback? And now I see people reach out and comment and you know, your engagement's amazing. So what was that journey like from the first time kind of using the, utilizing the internet and how has that all worked out now? The first time it's really scary and it took me like years, like five years to really uh, get it down. And I don't think I got it down, but um, it, it's really just, I've consistently done it, and even though it was scary, and even though I wasn't getting feedback. Right. Um, stories and everything. Yeah, yeah, so I started doing stories, which is really scary for me. Um, about six months ago, I was doing a workshop for uh, women, and um, on them helping them formulate a life that um, they want, that they desire, and then it all culminated in a painting, a goddess painting that represented them. And I, I had to sell that workshop. And I know that stories are what get me, right? Like it's, there's just so much in your feed nowadays that, and you're being bombarded with all this stuff all the time. So um, the people that I connect with are the people I want to continue to watch and I want to see their posts, right? Because I'm more interested. So I knew I had to do that. Like, I had to get over that. And um, it's really awkward to talk to yourself. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So as you can say, I'm still getting over the ums, but the more I do it, the better I get. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Does that answer your question? Absolutely. Okay. Uh, 10 out of 10. I know you work, and we're okay for time. We have time for like one more question? Two more? One more question, perfect, okay. So I know that you work across a wide variety of mediums, water media, mixed media, 
Describe that journey. What's that like for you when you're exploring new things? Are you one of those people, like, when you go to Michael's, that's, like, the greatest day of your life or, like, a craft store? Like, how do you begin to know what material, materials you want to work with and how much do you push the envelope outside of, like, you know, your zone? So Michael's is really overwhelming. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think because I've taken some courses from people whose art I like, they introduced me to all the medium I use. Yeah. And... Um, my process is really an exploration of them every single time. So I don't like go into a painting and say, I'm gonna paint this, right? I start with a background, I start with water-based stuff, so like inks and um, watered-down acrylics and lots of water and dropping that into the water and seeing what happens, what magic happens right there on the substrate. And then from there, I'm just like layering. I'm just, so I say I'm an intuitive painter because I'm just like responding to every move I make and how that reacts on the surface. And then that sparks a creativity or an impulse or, you know, the desire to make this mark or use this color. And I'm just like layering all of the different stuff. So I, I try to balance. Um, having the, the watery spots and that wabi-sabi look with um, some uh, more uh, opacity, like building up opacity in certain spots. And you can see that there. Yeah. Um, so that one is like a lot of negative space work. I started, I had like, it looked nothing like that. It was just... Yeah, this whole area, I love that. Yeah, so you can see in the leaves, right? That was the background. And then I layered over that. Never. Never. I just keep going because I'm just like I pick my colors, I see what happens, and then I get an impulse, and I'm just working from that. Yeah, and I think that I ran away from art years ago because it wasn't. I wasn't taught that way. You know, I was taught like to um, have an idea and and go ahead and do that and execute that. Um, and I wasn't taught to just explore and allow um, my impulses and intuition to take over, which if you want, like I, w I have a four-year-old and you, I watch her and that's exactly what she's doing, yeah. right? So um, yeah, it's been quite liberating to be out of academia and explore. I love, what, did you say, you didn't say follow the desire, you said follow the, follow curiosity. your curiosity. Yeah. That's what every painting is for me. Give it up one time for Kelly Siegel. Amazing. So good. Great energy. Oh, wait, real quick. What's your, I, I can say it for you. Your Instagram handle is? Kelly Siegel Art. Kelly Siegel Art. It's pretty cool. Go check it out. And uh, I didn't get to plug it before. Brian, your URL? Brian Evans Photos. Brian Evans Photos dot com? Brian Evans Photos .com or on Instagram. Dot com or on Instagram. Give it up for Kelly one time. All right, so I'm gonna turn this over. You guys have figured it out by now. All right, cool, done. Here you go. Give it up for Jenny one time. Make some noise, no seriously, make some noise for Jenny. I essentially just showed up to this thing. I'm being dead serious when I say that. I love Jenny, Jenny is amazing what she does. The first event I ever went to with Jenny, I was in DC and it was a yoga retreat and they, uh, I was kind of driving through the night. It was kind of like dark and everything and uh, I got to the front door of this like beautiful Airbnb, and I thought Jenny for sure would answer the thing because she was like running it. And there was a guy who met me at the door. He was like, "Good evening, Mr. Johnson. May I take your coat?" That's all he was there for was to take my coat. So from that moment to now, I've always wanted to do an event together, and Jenny has been really great. So one more big round of applause for Jenny. She's good at this kind of thing. If you're into event planning, multi-talented. And I think that creativity can kind of show itself in many different forms. So I do not buy that you are not an artist. You are an artist and putting this together tonight. So I'm very grateful for that. To my left, my man, Joel Weissman. Come on. I'm also a DJ. And, you know, the more I drink, the more the DJ MC part of me comes out. Ladies and gentlemen. Yes, no, sorry. So this is Joel. And uh, Joel is here with Cass, who is a great friend of mine from Represent Rampo College. Uh, and we got to talking and we, you know, we kind of known each other, but um, 
this actually, this whole thing in a weird way, I mean, Jenny and I talked about doing an event together, but uh, we had kind of discussed about getting local artists together and kind of just this kind of passing way. And uh, to have it kind of manifest itself tonight is pretty cool. We were kind of like, look, right before this podcast, we were just like, oh my God, this is so cool. We're doing it. We're here. We made it happen. So, uh, Joel, thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. Just read it up here. I feel like Joel's the kind of guy that wants me to read it up here. So, Joel received a bachelor's degree. I mean, like, from your resume, like, I would hire you. I'd be like, we got to at least talk to the kid. Uh, get your bachelor's degree from Montana State University. Uh, then you earn your master's of fine arts from Syracuse University. You are an inter interdisciplinary artist. Um, and this is what happens. I suck at reading out loud. Essentially, he makes a whole bunch of awesome stuff. Sculptures and uh, working in 3D printing and everything like that. Really pushing the bounds of, like, the physical space and art. Wait, I saw, I saw the word NASA in here. I just want to make sure I, I read that properly. William, uh, most recently was a, at the residence program at, you're so much smarter than me that kind of like irritates me, to be honest with you. Uh, William Patterson Center of New Art, where he conducted research utilizing NASA 3D models and state-of-the-art automated fabrication equipment. As an educator, Joel has taught at Oxbow School of Art in Sagatuck? Sagatuck. As someone from Long Island, I'm disappointed in myself for not getting that. Uh, Michigan, uh, Syracuse University in upstate New York, and you've led workshops at uh, Massachusetts College of Art and Design, Yale University, and Maine College of Art. Um, his work is, I just want to make sure I have everything here. And now you're teaching at uh, Rampo College, which is my alma mater, and uh, where I met Cass, your girlfriend, one day, soon to be wife. I'm, 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 pu I'm pushing really hard and making it more and more awkward every year. But, uh, you know, you're an educator and an artist. I think that's why you're a great fit for tonight. How'd your journey begin? Well, thanks for having me, Rob and yeah. Jenny. So I started in ceramics. Clay was probably my first uh, love in the art world and what introduced me into the world of making. Uh, and eventually I apprenticed with a potter and I lived that life for maybe 10 years where I made ceramics, made utilitarian vessels, and sold that uh, to maintain my substance. Um, utilitarian vessel. Utilitarian vessel is something you use. Oh, a yeah. mug, a bowl, a plate, something like that. For a wedding, you gave Sure, yeah, we gave you some bowls for your wedding. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so ceramics is really was my entry point into the art world. And I think that really set the stage for me as a maker and a, a craftsperson. Um, because although now my practice is more based around, you know, I, I like to use the term sculpture because it can encompass almost anything, right? I do video, photo, performance, you know, new media kind of 3D modeling to very traditional cast iron, bronze, welding, steel fabrication, and woodworking. Uh, but I think all of that can kind of fit within the envelope of sculpture, and that's why I really enjoy it. Uh, but I started in ceramics, and I think that's a really humble place to come from because mud is a very humble thing. Yeah. You know, it's in, it's under the ground everywhere, and right. it's been used for thousands of years, and it's it's a very cultural medium. It's probably the uh, oldest art form. It's yeah, it's probably one of the oldest. Yeah, and yeah. it's you know, and I think in that way, for a long time, it wasn't really considered an art form, right? And that's a whole other conversation between craft and art, and the capital C or capital A. Yeah. Do you have like a first, like a like a visceral kind of thing where you remember, like maybe you had like an art teacher or like a family member? When was the first time that you kind of saw what the 3D space could do, and and what was the medium? Again, uh, it probably dates back to ceramics for me, and I was really lucky in that I, for whatever reason, always knew that I wanted to work with clay from a very early age. I can remember uh, one of my best friend's moms telling me years later, you know, on the first day of high school, as she was driving us to school, she said that I said, and I don't remember this, that I wanted to take a ceramics class. Wow. Uh, and I don't necessarily know where that impulse came from, but I do remember that drive. And years later then, as my, my mom kind of saw my passion for this sort of thing, uh, she then got me lessons with a local potter. And those lessons turned into apprenticeship, which turned into a mentorship. Um, and that was really the first time that I was able to see that you can make a living off of this and that you can be an artist. And I think that's really important. And as an educator, 
I think that's one thing that I really try to show uh, the students is that this is a profession and this is a field. Um, and like anything else, it takes work, but uh, that this is something you can do. And I think that's really, uh, I think most people don't see that as an option and that's the biggest barrier to making work, making art is seeing it as something that's worth a life's work. Have you had an experience or multiple experiences where you've been able to kind of bridge that gap between like somebody who's on the fence, like, eh, I don't know, and um, what's it like when you're trying to teach them? How do you kind of transfer that enthusiasm? I think enthusiasm is actually something that I really utilize within education, and it's something that I think comes off, you know, for lack of a better way to say it, when you're enthusiastic, it's, it's uh, able to be seen by everyone. And... In, in that way, it's about like how I come to teaching with a passion. You know, I don't, I think in, especially in academia, a lot of times, especially in the art world, people tend to teach, you know, and especially I do as well because it's a paycheck, right? And it's benefits and it provides me a lot of opportunity to make my own work, but I really enjoy teaching for teaching's sake as well. Yeah. Uh, I enjoy teaching as much as I enjoy being an artist and... I never hear you talk about money. <laughs> but that's amazing. I love that. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I also, you know, there's other reasons why I also like to be within academia because it allows me to not have to worry about selling my product as much, which allows me to focus on the content and the theory and stuff. But that's a whole other conversation as well. But <clears throat> I really don't see it as like I don't give them the enthusiasm; I foster it. Yeah. Right. So I see it. I try to encourage it in all the ways possible, and it's about exposing them to things like. You know, I bring my students to an art residency in upstate New York called Salem Artworks. And I bring them to conferences all around the country from Alabama and Scranton. And it's about showing them that there is a community out there and that you just have to find your community, right? There's so many different artist communities and that's so pivotal to being an artist is like, I mean, for me at least, it's all about having that community, having the people around you that are making and working and showing and and kind of creating that energy. And so you have to figure out what you want to do, which can be part of what you want to say or what you want to make. There's so many different avenues to what you want to do, but find the people that are like-minded and you know, don't stop making. That's, I think the number one thing I try to instill is to just not stop making art because it's really easy to kind of find yourself worrying more about how to pay the bills and the life concerns, but no matter what, as you said in the earlier interviews, right? It's like you rack up that credit card debt, you take the second job to finance that project that no matter what, it's not about selling it per se, it's about making it, right? I think art has its own intrinsic value beyond outside of the idea of a commodity or the, you know, the marketplace. And so, yeah. So I just want to take a look at some, some of your work here. Um, that's kind of our, our last question. I know we have a couple of different case studies here. Um, and it's really great, and I know there's a great backstory behind this. You know, this is kind of like from a visual standpoint, it's really um, kind of interesting. But what I love about your work, it's really meaningful and really powerful because um, yeah, you can cycle through them. Um, you're working in all these different mediums. I know that you're very meticulous about kind of the way that things are lighted, that things are presented. So um, we have a couple case studies here. Maybe you kind of speak to some of those. Sure, you know, uh, I really approach my studio project by project, you know, so I, I think there are overarching themes that run throughout my work and, you know, kind of my elevator buzz speech is, you know, like my work is really concerned with memory, uh, authority, and place. Um, and, yeah, authority, you know, because the first image that was shown there is actually a piece of ceramic street art. Um, and when in Syracuse I started and this artist collective called Subpar, which is the Syracuse Urban Beautification Public Art Resistance. And I got really interested in, in street art and graffiti, and these are handmade ceramic tiles with screen printed uh, ceramic decals that are patterns of phone uh, receivers in a kind of skull and crossbone. And then there's handwritten gold luster lettering that says anything you say. And the idea was that there were all these old phone booths around town and they were vacant. And I wanted to try to kind of activate them. And so these are kind of uh, intervention, site-specific little installations that there, we probably did 20 or more of these phone booths where the tile is the same size, but we could kind of change the, f the script 
and the words, and they were all idioms that had to do with communication, right? Because an idiom is something that we instantly identifiable, but is also abstract in its uh, content. And so anything you say can is very broad, but we understand it. And so, I like I said, I approach my practice project by project. So whether it's ceramics, street art, or something like cast iron, you know, this is a a, a sculpture uh, of cast iron that was made on a, the pattern was created on a CNC router and it's actually Google Earth terrain data from a mountain in Montana and in the background that's a yeah, yeah, yeah. you know so again my work is all about memory and it's especially I, I try to utilize my own personal narrative to kind of access more universal ideas so yeah I lived in Montana um, so this show is called in another life and it kind of was all about looking back on one's own histories and narratives and kind of seeing, it's almost like you were that person at that time and place in your life. No matter where you are now, you existed as that thing then. And so I really enjoy thinking about that and yeah. seeing how we perceive memory and because memory is also concerned with archive. And, um, and then this piece uh, was Abandon All Hope, Ye Who Enter which is the inscriptions written on the gates of hell in Dante's Inferno. And this piece is cast iron, and this is only one of five sections. Uh, the whole piece is about 1,000 pounds, and it can range based on installation from 10 to 20 feet long. And it was made using ceramic slip casting molds from a mental hospital. So again, I'm really interested in, in memory, and I think memory can be used as a medium within art, just like anything else, like clay or paint. Um, and using the memory of these molds, right, this mental hospital discarded them. They got rid of their art therapy program, and I got a hold of these plaster commercial slipcast molds that were tchotchkes, like the things you see on your grandmother's mantle place. You know, the, the baby Jesus, or the turtle shell, or a soup cup, um, or Santa Claus. And these things were meant to be porcelain and very fine in this, this china, and then I started making these compositions out of them and then eventually casting them in iron, which really gave it this like nefarious kind of glow to it and this kind of quagmire of narratives. Uh, and it really kind of changed it, but I'm also at some point uh, memorializing these things. And I think that again, memory, public memory, monuments and memorials are something that kind of comes back in my work a lot. That's amazing, yeah. Just to, that's, this one in particular really is, is so moving to me. And you know, I think about like downstairs where we spend a lot of time hanging out, like my little garage man cave thing, being, the symbolism behind all like the tchotchkes and the, uh, the things that we hold so, so dear to us, they seem so like finite. Like I remember like going to like my mom's, going to my mom's house and kind of digging through all these old kind of things and they're so cheap and they're like the, the dollar value was like $4, but then the sentimental value of it was like timeless. And I think to do that with something like, you know, like a mental hospital uh, is really kind of cool, so. Dude, thank you for sharing. This has been amazing. This is exactly how I pictured it, but even cooler. Give it up one time. Joel Wiseman. We're going to take a quick, quick break. A very quick break. One more time for Joel. You can do better than that. Come on, people. Ow! Kill that music. You have stuff to do. So if I've known Kelly for damn near forever, I've known Carrie for like a couple of years longer. I think we might have been six years old when we met. Wow. Do not do the math. Yeah, screw you, don't do the math. They're both 21, if that helps narrow it down for anyone. Aw. <laughs> All right, so that's that. Um, thank you guys. Carrie's up, and then we have John, and then we'll get everybody together for some quick, like, panel-y questions. And you guys have been great, by the way, and I feel like everybody's having a good time. Everybody good with the temperature? Yeah. Awesome. All right, here, Rob. One more time for Jenny. There's never enough round of applause for Jenny. All right, so I'm here with Carrie Cat, K-A-T-T, -T. that's awesome. Thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having me. You're a multimedia artist based out of Rockland County. Rockland County in the house, make some noise, woo! We got Nyack over here, Suffern, Suffern. Where in Rockland? Stony Point, represent. So uh, Carrie has this incredible Instagram page called, I'm gonna make sure I got the proper animal here, the Purple Goat. Um, and under the goat, she hand paints children's walls, murals, uh, and runs an e-commerce site where she creates and sells wood decor, uh, home for children and moms, which is so cool. 
Uh, I was really amazed looking at your Instagram page and kind of seeing everything that you're, you know, you're doing now. So tell me a little bit about your journey leading up to this point. You know, how did you decide that you wanted to do murals and, and woodworking? Because um, it's all really super cool. So you take the lead and we'll go from there. So I've been painting all of my life. Um, I've always loved acrylics. I've worked with watercolor and um, all mediums. And I've been to school for uh, fashion design, interior design. I ended up getting a graphic design degree. I've literally been all over the map when it comes to art and design. <laughs> yeah. um, I, my purple goat kind of fell into my lap, I guess. One time I made a gift for somebody and they loved it. I put it on Instagram, um, Facebook at the time, and uh, I got a bunch of orders. So I said, all right, well, moms love this stuff. So I kind of opened up an Etsy shop and started doing um, things like this. My grandfather was a shop teacher at North Rockland High School and he was a carpenter. So I had the wood shop right there at my convenience. So that's kind of where that started. Um, this is now my, I guess, my job every day, which it sounds terrible. I love it, but it has become a job for me. Like today I painted 15 wood signs the same color and wrote the same thing on it. Right. I'm being completely honest right now. No, I'm at a crazy turning point in my life. I just had a kidney transplant about five months ago. Um, I don't have a real job, nine to five. So I'm trying to make the art thing work. And I love the purple goat, don't get me wrong, but it's not where my passion is. It's not like the love, like murals or fluid painting. Like I love that. that um, is, I want that in my house like, tonight. <laughs> like, okay, well that's yours then. <laughs> um, this stuff is what really gets me going. Like when I get stressed out, even at the purple goat, I take a day off and I just get covered in paint and my entire studio is a mess. Um, so I love combining wood, which this place is amazing. Like I want to take all of these wood panels home with me if I could. Like deconstruct the barn. 100%. <laughs> and just throw some paint on it. Yeah. One of the things I kind of try to tackle in my podcast is, you know, people just starting out. How nerve wracking was it the first time someone said, yeah, you could draw on my wall. And, and what is that experience like? And how do you go from doing that to going to a place where you feel comfortable, where you're like, yes. And it's like, you know, however much money you have. Well, the first mural I did was Thomas the Tank Engine. And I definitely I read a lot of Thomas the Tank Engine books to get a little inspiration. Um, it was scary going into it the first time. But to me, that that's easy to me. Yeah. Like, I can just look at the wall space and I picture it. And then just comes out of my hand like I've had a friend ask me like how do I blow it up do I use a um, one of those projectors but I don't I kind of just feel the space I'm a very visual person like uh, everything becomes yeah I kind of just I can just see it on there like even the pieces that I work with at home of like the fluid art or whatever I just I look I can look at it and it's like speaks to me like another artist here kelly she says she just throws it down and starts to paint like i can't do that like that's not like my process like i have to like i visually sit there and look at it and it it tells me like where something should go if that makes so sense crazy. yeah no for sure <laughs> did you have anyone in your family along the lines that kind of uh inspired you or did you have uh like a mentor or someone you looked up to well, who was the person that kind of guided you on that path to saying, like, I'm going to go draw on someone's wall? Uh, well, my aunt is a watercolor artist, and she's actually a teacher, um, an art teacher. But we don't really speak. So there's art in my family, but I don't know. I've just always been, like, a little, like, always in the corner, like, drawing or painting or doing something, like, very much a... Like, I was definitely born with something of wanting to be creative. Yeah. Um, and like I said, all aspects. Um, graphic design is also a love of mine, but um, it's not something that I wanted to, uh, I guess, pursue 
fully. Like I love to play around with it at home and um, do uh, like invitations or something for friends or principals. And I'm really starting to move that into um, a bigger, like doing that more and more every day, uh, trying to uh, get that up and going. I'm literally all over the place. <laughs> no, I'm literally all over the place, even in like just oh, the yeah. art world and of everything. Like I yeah. love every aspect of art that it's hard to, you know, focus on one thing sometimes. I actually totally relate a thousand percent. What is for you a place that you're trying to get to, or, or what is the next move for you? And, and um, or, or is that a constantly changing and evolving sort of thing? Um, well, it'll always be painting of um, murals will always be a thing. Uh, my multimedia of acrylics on wood and everything is definitely number one passion love of mine. Um, but that's kind of where I'm at right now because I just had the transplant. Like, I'm open. And I think that's why I'm so all over the place because I don't have a steady path right now. Yeah. So I'm just trying to you know figure it out and I think the only thing that I know is I need to be creative yeah. you did a damn good job give it up one time for Carrie K-A-T-T by the way I love that hat I love that hat it's orange it's on brand here we go alright give it up one time for John and your last name you can help me help me out here Globaki give it up for John Globaki Right here from Orange County Distillery. Sammy, just do me a favor before we start this one. Just make sure that we're still recording. Yes, I got you. Okay, perfect. All right, we're... John, thanks for being here. Appreciate it. Thanks. This is cool. Crushing right along through this. So Orange County Distillery. I love it because my podcast is orange, so it fits right on brand. Uh, Jenny has back there a little orange setup of all orange M&Ms and lollipops. She doesn't think it's a big deal, but for me as a designer, I just find that so charming and endearing, and I love it so much. So thank you for hosting us in this incredibly beautiful space. Uh, I know that you are a, a co-founder. Is that, is that correct? I'm uh, yeah, co-founder. Uh, we are so we're not at the distillery. This is Brown Barn Farms. The distillery and my farm are about two miles um, down the road, and that's uh, where we converted my produce operation into a distillery. Yeah. Um, so yeah, co-founder. Um, I'm the farmer. Brian Ensel and I um, are the uh, yeah founders of Orange County Distillery. How did this all come to be? As well as this beautiful barn, which I I I think I gather is over like a hundred years old. Is that a ton about right? Yeah, um, I'll, I'll kind of jump to the last part. We are at Brown Barn. We had, after we formed the distillery, we realized that hospitality was a big part of having a distillery. So I had picked this farm up a few years after we started the distillery, and it's just been a great place to entertain. Um, so back to why this place exists, because we started making spirits. My farm, um, I'm a produce grower. I've uh, been growing, grew born and raised in the area, been growing vegetables. Um, most of my life, onions, we're in a, a large pocket of black dirt here. Very rich, high organic matter soil. Um, and that was great, but we definitely, I had to take my business in a direction that, where I could create something value added. Um, growing something, but really turning it up and making something that's more marketable, more attractive to customers than just a head of lettuce. Um, something that, you know, had some better profit margin. Um, so I was definitely, you know, monetarily driven to try to figure out how to make this farm work in Orange County and the demands of labor and all that to try to grow produce. So I was playing around with growing grain uh, and seeing how it grew in our soil and seeing if we could, you know, if I could grow it first. Um, what we're looking at, sugar beet vodka, um, is how we taught ourselves to distill. Um, so we grew a white, uh, a white beet, not like the red salad beet, and we used that and we we played around until we made alcohol, um, and that was the kickoff to the distillery. Um, we made that, people liked it, um, so on or off the record, we were moonshiners for a little bit. Um, so cool. So it has to go that way, you have to try to figure it out, do people like what you're making, um, and, and can you make it with the ingredients you're creating. We made the beet vodka, uh, was growing the grain, uh, realized that we should be in the whiskey gig, um, taking the grain, handling it, you know, how does it work with the equipment we have, grinding it, like you, 
had mentioned the corn, you know, making bourbon. We have a, a rye whiskey that we love from Rye Grain. It makes a very specific type of whiskey. Um, single malt with barley. Um, we have peat. Um, we have our own peat on the f uh, from here in the black dirt, which we can burn and smoke the barley. Sorry, I keep referring to it. The black dirt, the soil that we grow on, that high organic matter soil, um, much different than what you've seen like in your backyard. It's just high organic matter so it has a dark color Na native to this area yeah um so yeah it gives us we have a you know the terroir i guess they call about so we do have a specific flavor our grains handle different um this photo i think uh, so we have a hydrometer we're just testing the proof the percent alcohol in, in probably a sample when i went there like there's these huge barrels and there's a lot of like uh like the product i'm not exactly probably at the time it was like rye whatever uh how much does it take to to make that and and, and of all the stuff that you guys make how much of it is usable and then how much of it because i would imagine there's got to be a lot of like trial and it sounds like it's just like riddled with trial and error how many barrels have we lost this year kind of thing yeah curious about the nitty-gritty of it the R&D part of it, um, early on, there was a lot of loss. What you're referring to, like, so in the mash ton process, when it was getting cooked, you had lifted the lid and you saw the fermentation. The, amazing. Yeah, that bread kind of, so the, the grain is in there and the sugar and the yeast, and it's doing its thing. It's producing that initial alcohol, and we take that and we distill it off, what we call strip runs, and we take That's that. It was fermenting, I think, that, that part that you're describing. Um, so early on, understanding the equipment, there was a lot of loss. We threw out gallons and gallons here and there so batch wise you know if that was like one through 20 we're up to like 300 now so a lot of those early numbers there was a lot of trial and error trial and error trial and error and that's how we taught ourselves we get, we get right smaller the smaller batches definitely helped us not lose money if yeah. we were doing our batches were that was probably like a 40 gallon batch at a time you know if we had 10,000 gallon batches at a time we'd probably be out of business with all the yeah. mistakes we made but um yeah. yeah so small batch and it's still like that now it's it's small we're just we've picked the pace up we're definitely about the craft brown barn where we are here has turned into its own great experience and we've had fun with that and and it's definitely developing and, and helped move product for us faster than i think the next distillery or the next brewery because we have this you know we were able to see that this building had, you know, potential to, to drive us into the market a little bit. Um, yeah, we're, we're very comfortable where we are. It's definitely put my farm in a great place um, to keep it running for multiple generations. I think you've really succeeded in making something that's really great and welcoming. I think, right, for everyone that came here today, everyone who walks in is like, damn, this is awesome. So congratulations. Give it up one time. My man, John. Glabaki. John Glabaki, people. Come on. One time. All right. Oh, my God. You guys are good. This is a good-looking panel. Oh, my God. Yeah. Shout out to Jenny hiring for looks. All right. Yeah, that's true. You know, Jenny has asked me to have questions here that are kind of everyone can relate to. So, you know, the purpose of my show, the podcast, which you should all listen to, one of the things I talk about is starting out. Is there a, a, an embarrassing moment of a first story that you have of your first time photography? Maybe you got to a wedding, you forgot it. Uh, I like to share these stories because they show people that are starting out that maybe their you know their screw up is not as big as they think. So first time starting out, one of my very early gigs, uh, spoke with this person and they wanted me to do. It was a birthday party. It was nothing nothing major. It was just minor. And they're saying, they were talking singers. Okay, singers, great, great, whatever, like that. I was away in Florida, and I finally came back. I got on the phone, I talked to them. Yeah, I'd see you at the party. Show up at singers, I walk in. It's a, birth it's a surprise birthday party. I'm ready to take the pictures. I take the picture of the guy getting in the door. Not their party. Yeah, that was pretty bad. So, Shall I pass it along? Here we go. He is next. The first story that came to mind was, I think, when I was in uh, art school early on. I needed to make a sawhorse for creating something I don't even remember what. And in order to make the sawhorse, I drew myself a design on how to build the sawhorse. And I think it was so bad that the, my sculpture professor put it on his door. Because it was the most cartoony, irregular, not to scale drawing of a sawhorse you've ever seen. Um, and I don't know, I still think about that because it got me to making a sawhorse. I didn't need anything else. but. 
it was like this funny little moment of like how bad this drawing was. Okay. I was uh, asked to do a custom painting and they liked one of my paintings that like, I wasn't even doing anything like that in the present moment, but they wanted something custom for their wife and they wanted her in it and I don't do realistic paintings and um, I took it on even though I shouldn't have and they the person talked me down to some minuscule amount and I uh, basically paid to do the painting because the amount it cost to ship it was as much as I charged and then I never heard a word from him. And he was like someone who he would have told me, like, I love it. So there was that like sinking feeling. But that's it. Okay, well, shipping is always, that was the hardest in the beginning. Um, but I'm going to say I'm a very right brained individual. So someone had me um, make, do these design letters for their child and. The J was in there, and I flipped the J around, and I painted the wrong side, and I handed it off to them. They're like, the J is backwards. And I didn't even realize that, because I was just <laughs> designing and painting away. <laughs> I feel like such an idiot. Um, yeah, so I had a little bit of time here to think about it. Um, so in year one of the distillery, uh, we're, we were the salesmen. I was a sales, one of the salespeople who were in the city, a uh, high-end restaurant. I won't name the name because we didn't land the deal because of this. But uh, so uh, I had my tasting bottles. Um, we used the little pours that go in there that meter the, the. So I had put them on ahead of time. Um, they weren't corked. I, I make it to this new customer, high-end restaurant. I go to pour them vodka, and, and gnats come out of the pour because uh, I had left them on and wherever the booze was, some flies got in there, and it was totally embarrassing, and it was kind of a crash and, <laughs> crash and burn situation. <laughs> uh, if you can go back in time, you give yourself some, some foresight, what would you say? Uh, well, I got to say maybe, uh, although I was doing photography, I said that in the, earlier in the podcast that I had put the camera down for a few years. I shouldn't have. I should have maybe... Why did I do that? It was just the way the direction my life was going at the time. Uh, I didn't realize the financial aspect of it, but uh, I should have kept it in my hands a little bit longer at that point. But, you know, that was about 10 years of my life, and then I suddenly realized, hey, what I'm missing here now, let's get back into this, let's do this the right way. And that's where it all began again, if you will. I suppose, I mean, I guess it's all very specific to our person, but I would tell myself to not worry so much about being so like specific within one medium perhaps you know I think it's something that I only expanded into a lots of different kind of materials much later on and earlier on it was more focused on developing my craft within one specific area and I think that, that limited what I was able to do but it also is how I was able to get to where I am now, so um, Mine would be to trust your intuition, trust your desires, 100%. This is hard for me because a lot of my changes in life was due to health issues, so I would um, yeah, just keep kicking it. <laughs> keep it down like me. Don't put the camera down. Keep moving on. Don't put the brush down. Yeah, so for me, uh, being a farmer, agriculture first, uh, weather has been a big part of my life. So I think anytime this kind of question comes up, um, it's just keeping your cool over time. The, all the stresses that this particular industry that has given me. Um, you can't just judge them over a single season. It, it's, you know, just keep your cool over time. It would be, so that, that would be, just keep your cool. Awesome, awesome job. All right, so you guys have been more than great. Just give a nice big round of applause for this incredible panel. This has been so cool. Yeah, yeah, that's it. Mind, mind reader. It's like, Brian is a mind reader, I'm telling you. I've, I realized that over time. Uh, you know, I've done some pretty cool things with the podcast. I think 
like, you know, going to Facebook was pretty cool. Seeing all the different, you know, interviewing all these people was really cool. But in terms of something being kind of like natural and organic and a real gathering of people, I think tonight has been one of the most like, re I sincerely mean this, like one of the most meaningful things. So I really appreciate everyone and Jenny for making this possible. It's been, it's been so great. So, all right, give it up one time for this amazing panel. Oh my God, we did it.